Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Pep. I am so excited to be here today because all last season we talked about trauma. Hmm. All this season we're talking about shame, but today we get to talk about joy a little bit. Yeah. You know. That's, uh, With the emphasis on a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> and how shame ruins it. <laughs> so we get to give hope and then whack it with a hammer. <laughs> Folks, if you're just joining us this season, uh, we are going through Kurt's, what was his second book, The Soul of Shame. And I implore you to go pick it up if you don't already have it, because it will be a great companion, or actually the podcast is a great companion to the book. They they work really well together, just like we did last season with The Soul of Desire. Uh, we are excited to be going through this book. And today's chapter is chapter three in the book, um, and it is entitled Joy, Shame, and the Brain. Hmm. Yeah, you know, Pep, it's, uh, it, it, is a, it is a testimony to how powerful uh, shame can be in our life in that when we just just started with a little brain science, this notion that it takes about three seconds for us to have an encounter with and have shame become embedded and to, for us to encode it in our memory. Mm. Less, less than three seconds for that to happen. For us to have an encounter with joy, which we'll get to in terms of what it is and why it's important, for us to encode it and remember it, not just to have the experience, but to remember it, can take upwards from 60 to 90 seconds hmm. for us to pay attention to it. And there is something about that whole reality that feels kind of sinister in terms of like, why does, why does shame have such easy access to us? And why, does, why is it so difficult for us to have access to joy? At the same time, it's equally true that when we discover a little bit more about what shame is intended to be, given that it's made as part of the created order, what is its intention from God's perspective? And what is joy's intention? We'll discover that the work of paying attention to joy is all in the long run worth it because God really wants us to take the time to allow it to be kind of kneaded into the dough of our souls, as it were. And it reminds me that uh, I, 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 just this, this one piece that um, our readers would see in, in the book, in, in this chapter, uh, there, there are a couple of things that I, I wanted to just f- focus on to begin. That this, this one quote, the defining relational motif for humankind is not that we need to work as hard as we can, or at least harder than we are. It is not to do our best or to guarantee that our children will have a better life than we had. It is not about being right or the acquisition of power. Each of those and other visions like them play into the hand of shame's anxiety. Rather, we were created for joy. Tolstoy said it. Only this purpose, joy, is ultimately worthy of life. When we remember the Westminster Confession, that the chief end of mankind is to love God, and to enjoy him forever. And then there's this quote that C.S. Lewis, uh, this this is, uh, uh, I have a a, a new book that I'm working on, on how we form hope in the face of suffering. And one of the 
foundational elements of this has to do with the degree to which we begin as people of glory as we are facing this. But this glory is all just filled with joy. And Lewis writes this in his sermon, The Way to Glory, and I quote, Lewis speaking here, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall, quote, stand before, unquote, him, stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Close quote. This notion that God's experience of joy in our presence is really difficult for us to get our heads around, our lives around. Yeah, you, I don't want to derail us, but... It, no, no, you're not. Go right ahead, man. It is difficult. That is, you know, that's a really hard thing. And as we've talked about on this podcast previously, the one avenue to experience that that is a little easier is through our relationships with other people. Yeah. And those moments where... You know, take take our our relationship for example, where mm-hmm. we've shared deep, vulnerable things and experienced. I believe God through that in that relationship, mm-hmm. and I can then understand better mm-hmm. what God's love for me looks like and feels like, and you know all the senses of it through my relationship with you. Mm-hmm. But without mm-hmm. that. You know, I find it really, really hard and so just sort of ethereal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 It's, it, it's, it's hard to imagine. And of course, you know, we have our moments of great joy and delight. And I can also hold in reserve, yeah, well, if Pepper only knew this, then that delight would like leave the building in a heartbeat. And I think that's been what has, you know, what has been so transformational has been that there are things about me, actually very little about me that you don't know, if anything, of significance. And yet there is, and yet the delight is in the room, even in the face of it, which is really, really crucial. And so the whole notion, as, as Lewis writes, the whole notion that at some point we will be examined And all the stuff about who we are that we hate the most will be put on display. And God's like, this is all true. And you know what? Here's what's even more true. And you're like waiting. And it's like, I'm so glad you're here in my heaven. I'm so glad you're here on the earth. And you're looking around thinking like, are you, who are you? Are you talking to me? 
it is an experience in a moment that is like unto many that we just really can't and you really can't get our heads around. It reminds me of uh, a, a young woman, her name was Jackie, that you read about mm-hmm. in, in the book, whose life was uh, one of uh, torment and in many respects kind of emotional abuse, uh, kind of a relational scarcity, um, single parent uh, home that she grew up in and kind of violence around in the, in the neighborhood which she lived and just really, really, really difficult. And she, uh, just lots of things about her life that were, uh, you know, setting her up for things not being well, not, not going well over the course of the trajectory of her life. And then she had this one acquaintance who invited her to come to a Young Life meeting. Mm-hmm. And for those of us, who, those of you who are familiar with Young Life, I mean, these, these folks are just working really hard to come up with the next imaginative way in which they see God showing up in the room. And you're like, really? God shows up like that? I want, I want some more of that. And this young life, this friend took her to a young life meeting and she met this leader, this young life leader, who became both the uh, emotional healer and at times gadfly that Jackie couldn't get rid of. This, you know, this young woman, this young life leader just continued to be present for her over and over again. And, and Jackie would do things to try to get rid of her. Jackie would do it because, you know, you, you don't, you know, when people come with loving you and caring for you, like your shame attendant is right there just like, this is, you know, like, what, like what, what, what is she selling? Right. And but I don't want to, and, and I don't want to expose things. I don't want you getting too close. Nope. Yeah. Nope, because like you'll leave like my dad left. You'll leave yep. like this. You'll leave like all these other things that are that are going to happen. And then it turned out that Jackie had a skill in with words and writing and language. And so between the young life leader and uh, an English teacher, who the young life leader began to help coordinate some things with, you know, it turns out that uh, and 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 the high school that she attended actually had a couple of teachers in an English department that really helped kids do well with this. Through a number of different things, Jackie, over a long period of time, uh, through fits and starts, Jackie became willing to surrender to joy. She became willing to surrender to the reality that this young life leader was not pretending when she found joy in Jackie's presence. And the English teacher was not pretending when he found joy in Jackie's presence. And there was, there, there was no consumption of Jackie in the process. They, they weren't there to exploit her, which of course is really difficult because she's got lots of track record of exploitation in her family growing up. And, and so interestingly enough, as much as joy is the thing that we long for, on the way to, because as, as, as we'll see from Alan Shore's work, it is the thing that mediates our relationships to help establish them, to get them started. As much as we long for that, it's equally true that we have a history of wondering when is it, when is it all going to, when's the shoe, other shoe going to drop? When is that going to happen? Because this all goes back to Eden, right? This all goes back to when, when is the other shoe going to drop. We learn that joy becomes, when we, when we start to look at interpersonal neurobiology and, 
and the neuroscience behind this, we learned from Alan Shore's work. Alan Shore is a neuropsychologist on the West Coast at UCLA. We learned that joyfully attuned relationships are the primary positive developmental, like joy is a primary positive developmental affect that grounds this process of creating a secure base for attachment. Now, those words I just spoke, like what, is, what does that mean? That, that this positive affect, this emotional state, this neurophysiologic state of joy, this sense of the newborn and the infant and the toddler seeing the delight of themselves in the eyes of their parent, this becomes the primary grounding affect, the primary grounding experience that gives them a secure base, that gives them a sense of like, <sighs> I can exhale and now go off and play an adventure. And I can, I can even, I can have enough of this that even when I, even when I make mistakes, even when there are ruptures, we can repair those ruptures and return to joy. We also learn that joy, however, is contingent upon the intentions of adults. Joy isn't just something that I only come up with and experience on my own recognizance. I don't just manufacture it out of thin air all by myself. Oh, I'm just going to be joyful. I can become joyful because I remember what it's like for other people to experience joy in my presence. Jackie didn't have many experiences in which she was a joyful presence to others. And even when she began to have this experience at her Young Life meetings and with her friends and with this leader in particular, it still took some coaxing because there was the part of her brain that remembered, her brainstem, her amygdala, the other parts of her brain that is paying a lot of attention to danger. It took time and energy and practice. It took the better parts of three to four years for her on a regular basis to have practiced relational interaction that could make that joy and the neural networks that correspond with that, not just in her brain, but in her body, durably reflective of that relational joy that she was experiencing at any given time. So it's contingent. It depends upon the intention of another. That's what we're looking for. And so we then find that like this joy is something that I experience and I love, but I don't just love it for its own sake. Joy becomes the mediator for connection. The joy is this thing that draws me into wanting to be back in connection with you. Like, you know, I don't just want to be with you and Amy to record these things just because I feel joyful. Yeah, it's true, but it's really the two of you that are the thing. Right. It's what we do together that is the thing. And so not only we, we see that, but we also see the work of Carol Dweck. So we've got this work from Alan Shore about joy being this foundational affect that establishes secure base. But we also have this sense that when Carol Dweck in her work and her book called Mindset, Carol Dweck is a psychologist out uh, at Stanford, and, and she, she does this really amazing work at helping us see that even in hard times, even when things are really difficult for us, that when we hear from someone else, well done, not just because I've taken the test perfectly, but because of the effort I'm putting into it. When someone says, I see how hard you're working. I really get it. I'm just really, I'm really proud of how hard you're working. You know, I've had the experience of, uh, this is this is something that I try to do anymore. When uh, when I've if, if I've been someplace, uh, I I just had this experience a week ago. Uh, my wife and I had the chance to go to a small concert that was being where my son was playing, and and the guy that he's uh, Daniel Wrigley is a guy who's just this brilliant young 
singer songwriter a songwriter in particular but, but like there are a few instruments that he can't play he's one of those guys right it's just a beautiful soul who's done a ton also of hard work in his own story and afterward i just you know i i, I said to daniel like look everything you did you and nathan did but like that you did here tonight because he was helping to play with other uh musicians who were also playing that evening i said like i'm like i'm really like impressed with what you did tonight I said, but like, uh, I'm, I'm also really impressed with and proud of like all the work that I know that it's taken for you to get to what you did tonight. You know, it's like nobody asks Tom Brady after every, you know, whatever the next Super Bowl is that he's won. Nobody really, few people are saying like, take us back to minicamp. Right. Tell us, walk us through, walk us through one of those, one of those two a day practices. Just walk us through. Like, there's nothing to walk through. Like, you don't want to hear me say, well, we did we did 30 reps of this one down and out route, 30 reps, 30 times over and over. Like, like nobody wants to hear about that, but that's, that's where Super Bowls are won. Over and over and over and over and over again, this hard work in which people find joy. When I could say to Daniel, when I could say to other performers, like, oh my gosh, thank you. Not just thank you for the sermon. You know, this, our, our current pastor, Andrew Chung. I, I mean, just, uh, has for the last three years, I think that he's three to four years that he's been in our in our church. has just delivered sermon after sermon after sermon that I find to be so formational for me. And you're listening to this, and I could listen. I go back and play it again, and go back and play it again. And yet, that's not taking into account all the hours that he had to spend thinking, writing, thinking, writing, praying, thinking, writing, praying, praying, thinking, praying, writing. All the work. To which I want to say, I want you to know that like, I'm like coming out of my shoes with about all the hard work that is like, that doesn't really feel very fun, good, whatever. It's the hard work. And this is what Dweck is saying in No Small, like when we hear good, well done, even if you haven't been perfect, and especially when you're not perfect, that you're working hard at this is really also a significant element of how joy helps us connect with others because what we're looking for is connection and not perfection. And we might say that there's no domain of life across the lifespan in which we as humans aren't looking for that. If I'm in third grade, it's my teacher. When I'm in my third decade, it's my my middle manager. When I'm in my 60s, now now I want it for my kids. I'd love to hear it from my kids. I, 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 and, and, and when I'm 60s, I still want to hear it from my 85-year-old parents. Like this, like I want to hear it in the boardroom. I want to hear it like this, this notion of like, we don't just want to hear well done on the book you wrote, but man, thanks for all the hard work. Thanks for all, like I, I know that you're, you're doing production work. You're, you're doing your, your, your... <laughs> I don't know what you're not doing except being on the stage of these tours that you're helping to produce and to write and all the things. And like, and they're, and they're going to go and they're going to produce it. And it's going to be brilliant for the people, for the, you know, people who encounter them. And I would want you to say like, dang, all the hard work that nobody sees or talks about. That's well done right there. And that's where we're longing to have joy be felt and experienced. Yeah.
If you've been listening to the Being Known podcast, you know that trauma and its healing are something to which we pay a great deal of attention. So when the women at Hun's Honey reached out to partner with us, it was really just a no-brainer. Hun's Honey is a social enterprise dedicated to creating dignity and purpose for and with women who have survived significant trauma, be that of addiction, trafficking, generational poverty, or abuse. Before being employed at Hun's Honey, these women commit to a holistic healing process through a life development program, free counseling, workshops, and building community. You know, Kurt, recently Amy and I had a great opportunity to tour Hun's Honey, and I really have to tell you that we were both just blown away by the work that they're doing there mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. heart that Mandy and Sarah and Jordan have for their women that they serve and the work that they do. Mm-hmm. We were so impressed with these women who are bravely working to overcome the trauma that they've suffered. And here's how you can help. So Hun's Honey, they sell home, body, and honey goods, such as sugar scrubs, soap bars, beeswax candles, and raw honey. All of their products are filled with high-quality natural ingredients using locally sourced honey. You know, in fact, they raise their own bees, and they harvest their own honey themselves. And we heard stories about the healing process of working with bees. One of the women uh, had a story that she was saying that but as you approach the bees, before you approach the bees, they could feel any anxiety that you may be having. So you really have mm. to sort of go through mm. this meditative, mindful process of, mm. of calming yourself before you approach the hive or you're going to get stung, which I thought wow. was just fascinating. Wow. Wow. Living, breathing experience of life-changing work. And 100% of Hun's Honey's profits go to employing women survivors of trauma, 100%. Mm. So, folks, your purchase has a purpose. Mm. It paves the way for women to rebuild their lives in concrete ways. So here's what you can do. You go check it all out. They've got great gifts and everything else there at hunshoney.com. That's H-O-N-S-H-O-N-E-Y.com. And use the coupon code BEINGKNOWN. That's B-E-I-N-G-K-N-O-W-N for 20% off your order. This is a great gift that has generational impact. That's Hun's Honey. You know, you've, you've said often on this podcast that you are grateful for your parents and you wouldn't be the man that you are here today had it not been for your parents and you love them and, and, you know, and I feel the same way. But there was, I was longing for this hmm. from my father. I mean, I was longing for well done. Uh, hmm. Hmm. To the point that I think mm-hmm. in my adult life, I went out and had to, had to find people that could see that and say that mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and just mm-hmm. when I read this in the book, it was kind of like I could relate a bit to, to this particular character because when I can remember so many times when I would have worked really hard, literally waiting to hear those words, I'm proud of you, well mm-hmm. done, and mm-hmm. they just weren't there. You know, I think a lot of times it comes to you can't give what you don't have and all those kind of things um, or what you weren't given. But the thing that I want to say that I'm so hopeful about, even in in this chapter, what you've covered so far, is that we can still co-regulate with one another and we can still find those things and feel those things to their fullest as adults. 
you know, Jackie didn't get this as a child at all. She she was not safe and secure, and she was not feeling those things. It took the young right. life leader to stay and stay and stay mm-hmm. in order for her to be ready to hear what the English teacher even had to say. And I, I highlighted that English teacher in here because how many of us have had a teacher that saw something in us and made a huge difference by saying one thing to us, that they believed in oh us, my that they, you know, God bless the teachers because, man, they have, they have impacted me. There have been several. Miss Smith, <laughs> she was oh, incredible. Dude. You know, there were so many that, that saw me along the way. Okay, wait, 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 okay, wait, 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 wait. Tell us, like, what, what, what was something Miss Smith Ms. Smith did? was my, um, she was an eighth grade teacher. And huh? um, I remember the very first day she was, she was like, you knew, I had her like fifth period or fourth period or something. And you knew before you're going to get there that she was mean. Like, she was like, <laughs> you know, she, she was this, she's, everybody was terrified, you know, coming you, in there. You've yeah, heard. you heard. You, like, you've so you heard the she's rumors. So and so... We came in and you had the assignment to write what you did over the summer. It was what it was what was going to be the first thing. It was an English class, and the first thing we come in and she says, "Who's Pepper?" <laughs> and you know, I'm already anticipating that she's mean, and oh I'm in gosh. trouble. Oh my gosh! It's like Darth Vader. Who's right. Pepper? And I'm I'm like, you know, it's me. You know, and she said, <sighs> "Oh, she did. She already had your papers. No. Did she already get?" But she had everybody else's papers from the classes previous, and several people had mentioned me in a positive way. And she wanted to— In their their papers. papers, And what they did in the summer, and she wanted to point that out to me right away. And she went on to be somebody who, throughout that year— Wait, 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 wait. I don't want to get her—so what did—like, what what did she say? She said— Who's yeah, Pepper? It was like, you, yeah. you, she said, I want to know who this is because everybody's writing about them. And saying, you know, like she gave examples of what different people said. And I was like, I'd never experienced anything like this before, right? And Oh my right? gosh. And, and then, you know, first of all, the whole mean thing was a complete act for the first like few days of school to just kind of get <laughs> Th- these eighth graders in line, and then she was the kindest. That's right. That's right. I'm yeah, in charge. Yeah, yeah. You're not in and charge. So I'm in charge. She encouraged yeah. me as no one had ever encouraged me as a writer or a creative at this point. She encouraged me all throughout the year. She saw things in, in things that I would write and things that, and she told, um, I remember a parent teacher conference. My mom came home and she said, you know, that this Miss Smith, when she first met her, she said she, she said something along the lines of, you don't have to worry about him because he works. I mean, she just mentioned, you know, she, he works hard. He's connected to people with, you know, relationships. He's, he's well-liked and he's got a very good EQ. And, you know, saying all these things that I had, ne- you know, I didn't, I never thought about myself. And so she was one of the f- first influences mm. that really I felt like was breathing life into me and, and, you know, telling me I could, I could do things that I didn't know that I could do. And, mm. and so those teachers just, mm. you know, so, so all that to say, Jackie, I don't think could have heard from the teacher if she hadn't first had relations with people that, that, mm-hmm. that opened up her heart and, and got her to do that. And then you think about this, this work and it's, it, you know, well done for your work and, and 
even though I didn't get that, those words that I wanted as a child or whatever, I, I get them, I've, I've gotten them now, and it's, it's made a huge difference. So all that to say, I, I think that's part of the hope that I'm hearing in mm-hmm. this chapter mm-hmm. is that it's not too late. It's never too late. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Absolutely right. It's never too late. And we're going to make a little pivot here and, and talk about a little bit about how shame actually works. But, but the point is, to, to, I mean, to your point, we're not naming the way shame works right. to create a sense of hopelessness. We want to name it in order for us to have a better sense of how it, how it works so that we can take that information and create the hope that you're talking about so that we can be better prepared, better aware of how evil is trying to use it to undermine us, to keep us, to rob us of this experience of joy that we really deeply long for, that well done that we want to hear. And so we talk, one of the very first things that we talk about is one of the very first ways that we encounter it is this notion that we like to say that shame is early out of the gate, that its attack on the system begins first and foremost as kind of like a neuro physiologic response. It's not just a, an abstraction, like I feel it in my body when I feel it. And not only that, it can emerge as early as 15 to 18 months of age, which means I'm already starting to pick things up in the family system in which I live. I'm not, I don't have language yet. And so I don't, I don't know that this is what's happening. I don't necessarily make sense of like, oh, I feel bad because they did this or, you know, she did, she said that, or he didn't say that. I'm just having this sense of something and it is also then, though it's important, it's not just a thing that I encounter. It is a function of interpersonal interactions. I sense it, but I'm sensing something else that's coming at me. It doesn't just emerge within me ex nihilo out of nowhere. Alan Shore likes to talk about the metaphor of the accelerator, the brake, and the clutch as being the mechanical way for us to understand this. If we think about the sympathetic drive system of the brain. It's not just our fight or flight system, it is that, but it's other things as well, including that it works in sympathy with us. My heart rate goes up, my breathing rate goes up, I have an alertness to me when my sympathetic drive system is up, and I do that when I'm actually interested in things that I have eagerness to participate in. So not just when I'm afraid, but when I wanna do things. I think about, if you were to measure my blood pressure and heart rate. If I think about, oh, I'm going to get to play basketball today, or I'm going to, I'm going to get to record with Pepper and Amy, like ever so, it, it, the sympathetic drive system starts to go up just a little bit. So there is this accelerator. Newborns, infants, toddlers, they are in go mode. Their accelerator is going, and then they sleep. But children also at some point have to learn a braking system. We have our accelerator, we have our braking system that that mirrors the sympathetic drive system. It's our parasympathetic system, which puts the brakes on. It slows things down, slows down my breathing rate, my heart rate, my body function. Kids aren't so good at this. And so they need the help from their adult parents. And adult parents help to do this. They slow things down by saying no, by moving, by setting limits, all those things that take time, effort, consideration. And if they're doing it mindfully, We can say no in a gradual way. We can say no quickly and in a loud way. But even those of us who have this happen are reminded, Shore likes to talk about the standard transmission engine of an automobile, this notion that we do have an accelerator, we have a brake, but we also need a clutch. 
And the clutch, the thing that helps us navigate between the accelerator and the brake, is the interpersonal relationship that the child has with the parent. And even if the parent has to say no, but quickly moves to be present for and with the child in whatever situation they're in that required that harsh no in the first place, it's kind of like if you have to slam on the brake suddenly, but you follow it quickly enough with the clutch, you don't lose the engine. But we know what it's like anytime an engine of a standard transmission automobile decelerates without the use of a clutch. It doesn't just stop, it stops violently. Sure points out that shame to us is what happens when we decelerate quickly without the connection of an interpersonal relationship. That is, it is, it is the absence of that interpersonal relationship. And so we have this sense of you could be standing at a party and when you're talking with two or three people and you offer something in the conversation and somebody just passes right by without any comment. Nobody said you're an idiot. Nobody said that's stupid. They just don't talk to you. It's a deceleration process. You feel the deceleration, but there's no, nobody comes back and says, hey, Kurt, you, you mentioned this earlier. That would be like somebody coming to find me, this interpersonal connection. But it's not just in those small moments, it's moments in the boardroom. It's moments when we were three and six and 10. It's the 10-year-old who takes his 92% and dad says, uh, on his test where he's so proud of it, and dad says, "Yeah, where's the other 8%? I'm going to tell yeah, you yeah, just yeah, a yeah, real quick yeah. story. So uh, this was years ago. I was uh, guest starring on a TV show. First, when you're a guest star, you're a guest in somebody else's house. I mean, kind of feels that way until you get, mm-hmm. you know, and so... Uh, the first scene I was in was a big shot, crane way up high. We're up on these stairs. It's nighttime. I want to say it was raining, but I'm not sh- – like fake rain, but I'm not sure if it was or not. Uh, and we're coming down the staircase. The, the camera is following us down, and then we settle at the bottom, and we finish this conversation, and we go on. And this is my first day, first shot. And action, coming down the stairs, and the lead actor of the t- of the series – I deliver my line, and he says something back to me that is nowhere near what the scene is about. Like, I mean, it wasn't like he was trying to improv, like let's do, or or it just was like I couldn't get us back, you know, so I tried, and then he gave another line that was nothing close to the script or nothing that was really about the story or anything, and then he says, so there's probably... 50 people, you know, on the set and everybody, you know, and money's being spent as, as, as every second goes by. And then he, he stops, looks out to the crowd and says, cut. He doesn't know his lines. Ah. And I felt this rush of, Ugh. I mean, it, it was the feeling of shame, you know, even though I wasn't, even though I hadn't, it wasn't true. It still was like, you know. But then, like almost immediately, a wardrobe person like hooked my arm and rolled me around and said, don't worry, everybody knows what's happening here. And that feeling was immediately gone. Come to find out that this, oh was, my his, gosh. this was his MO. Then I go tell the story to my friends who are actors and who had also been on this show, and everybody in town knows that this guy has a reputation of, A, trying to sabotage any other actor that comes on the set, and B, not knowing his lines and not, you know. So, but 
I think that that just that that feeling right away of the shame and then somebody coming in Ugh. and saying, I understand, was just like an immediate healing bomb that was like, okay, oh, okay, right. I can just go I on mean, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that that that's it. Like that is that is that that is a perfect example of this story. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, mm, um. Mm. That whole that whole sense of like you know <laughs> being publicly humiliated like yeah. that, and then to have somebody come to find you immediately. Yeah. So we that, that's an example of how shearing it feels when shame finds us like that. And as we've talked about in the last episode, when we talked about these nine different domains, reminding people of this, it gives us an example of how those nine different domains, those nine different sections of the orchestra, suddenly they just get like completely disconnected from one another. And even internally within themselves, they don't know what to do with themselves. And so all these things get disintegrated. We find that shame is not, is primarily about me, but it's not only about me. Right. Right. There is a certain accusation. He doesn't know his lines that eventually gets to a point of even contempt. John Gottman, his work on marriage, as some of our listeners may be quite familiar with, like would say that the single most powerful predictor that a marriage will not last is once the couple finds themselves in a field in which contempt is one of the, you know, the, uh, one of the tools that they're using to interact with each other, right? The, the, the blow up of the relationship is, is, is not far behind. And that, that, that whole sense of accusation and uh, from which, you know, we get this notion of the Satan, right? This word, the Satan means the accuser, this condemnation that shame really wants to implement. And so it's an example of how if we don't have someone, if we don't have someone from wardrobe immediately coming to find us, we have all this sense. First we sense. And imagine like how you would have been left to make sense of that. Like yeah. there, there would be no, there would only be just like nausea. Like you're just left with it. If somebody doesn't help you to make sense of that. So this, this idea that first we sense things and then we make sense of things. And part of what shame wants to do is have us sensing things, but left on our own to make sense of it in ways that don't make sense, but that help us cope. And in that process of when we're having to make sense by ourselves, the shame itself is reinforced, especially when that shame is intended especially when that shame is intended in the way that it was. We would like to say that there are behaviors in the world which when we, when, when, when we act them out, shame is actually the proper response. We would say shame didn't just show up uh, as evil's invention. Shame was built into the creation as the response that we would necessarily have when we are responding by turning away from turning away from God, turning away from each other, not for the purpose of greater connection later on, but for the purpose of protecting ourselves from the vulnerable interactions that we have. And when I do something that does that, shame is the proper response. There are behaviors that I might do. And if I yell at my kids, if I, if I, if I do something for which shame is the proper response, I need to be able to own that. The real question is, what is my intention? What is anybody else's intention in using that shame? The toxicity of shame begins when it is intended, when we use it. We use it in parenting. We use it in coaching. We use it in teaching. We use it in, apparently we use it in, in the studio. We use it, all, we use it in politics. We, we, we use it 
to hurt others to protect ourselves. And that's when it becomes toxic. And that toxicity weaves its way into the way that we tell our stories. And in our next episode, we're going to talk about this really important question of in what story do we believe that we're living? Because what evil wants to do is to not just make us feel bad, not just use shame to disintegrate our minds, disconnect us from within ourselves and from each other. It doesn't just want to make us feel bad. It wants to devour us. It wants us to tell a completely different story than the story that God has been trying to tell from the beginning. And so as an application, over the course of the next week, I want us to consider these questions. First of all, what brings you joy in the course of your day? You know, we get to the end of our days and like, I, 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 can, I can tick off the things that have pissed me off. I can tick <laughs> off the things that are like, it's not, it's like, like you know, I, I go to bed. I'm just, I'm just glad to go to bed because I don't want to think about all the things that I don't want to think about. Consider developing a joy journal making a list. What are the things, what are the things that brought me joy today? Keeping a written record of this. And then at the end of the week, each week, just take a few minutes and review that. Another question, who are the people who find joy in being in your presence? Now, you know, this is the thing, right? Like some of us are, are so racked by shame. They're like, well, I don't, I don't really know. And it's not because there is no one, but because it's really difficult for us to allow to allow that to be the case. So it might feel kind of risky to be able to name, well, actually, I think my brother really finds joy in my presence, or my spouse actually does. You know, some, there are a lot of people in marriages that, you know, I know that, that, I know my spouse tells me that she finds joy or he finds joy in my presence, but I'm not, I'm not really sure, like, I don't always feel, or, or my employer or my employer, like, who, who are, the, who are the friends that genuinely find joy in my presence? And if you are willing to do this, consider writing them a note or telling them in person that you're grateful for them finding joy in your presence. Another question is, when did you have an experience this past week of shame that disintegrated your sense of joy and curiosity? Pay attention to what some of the physical or emotional or cognitive consequences were that you can recall in the middle of that. Again, kind of pausing, taking a step back, and just observing it without condemning yourself for having had it in the first place. And then lastly, how do you start to sense that shame is beginning to bend the way you tell the story about who you are and what your future will be? We talked last time about the temporal domain of life and how we are the animals only who can see into the past and make sense of it and we tell a story about our future. In what way do we allow shame to color the way we are telling our story about our past and about our future going forward? And we're going to continue to cycle back into this, especially as we talk in our next episode about what it means for us to be storytellers. But for now, let's just start with that application and we really are looking forward to the next next chance that we have to be together. No doubt. No doubt. Good stuff, Kurt. Thanks for the application. Uh, I'll be jump, digging into that this week and encouraging all of you listeners to do the same. You know, I think if you are going through the book, The Soul of Shame, and you're listening to the podcast and you're doing the applications as well, you're really going to you're really going to get everything that you can out of this podcast. And I just want to encourage people mm-hmm. to um, just jump in wholeheartedly. 
Thanks, Kurt. This is great. Thanks, Pat. Love you. Always great to be in conversation with you, man. Always Love good. It. Always good. And if you are uh, watching us on YouTube, stick around. Uh, Amy's going to be joining us. Right on. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simon. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.